So we are in Luke 19, 1 to 28, and we're waiting for the coming kingdom. It's in our, in our working through the harmony of the Gospels. If you're newer to Emmaus Road, you may not know what the harmony of the Gospels is. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John laid out chronologically as the events occurred in real time in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so, um, so let me back up and, and, and just give a little introduction here. Some of you may know, some of you probably don't know that I am, generally speaking, not a terribly patient person. And my daughter laughed as soon as I said that. She said, well, yeah, I know. But I've grown. I've grown in that skill set, that area of my life, though I'll stop short of saying I have mastered that. Oh, oh me, yes. Um, I, I, I don't really like waiting, um, though I'm, I'm becoming more accustomed to doing it. And um, that, yeah, in our lightning fast culture makes it difficult. It's getting harder in many ways to engage patience, though Jesus regularly finds ways to make me do that. And it's against my will and it's for my good. And I don't know if you have that experience too, but um, <laughs> amen. It'd be bad. Just amen. Oh yeah, I'm with, I'm with you. Um, now my wife, she enjoys this thing called anticipation. And I just can't wrap my head around that. She enjoys waiting. Like, like, like on Christmas morning, okay? She revels in, in the joy and she delights in just sitting together as a family, taking our time, eating our Christmas breakfast together and taking more time as we go through a few of our traditions as a family before we ever get to the presents. And, and I just have a problem with that. <laughs> and I just needed to un unload that on you today. Um, she just revels in the joy and she delights in sitting together as a family. And, and she's such a patient person, though she'd be the first to tell you that she wasn't born that way. It's an acquired skill. We're very different, she and I, in this way. But in one particular area, we both are anxious. And though we're waiting, we're hoping and anticipating the arrival of Christ's coming kingdom. We're both, there's one of those areas where we can just relate to one another. We're just anxious and excited and ready for the kingdom to come. We're, we're expecting a kingdom because we see clearly in Scripture that Jesus' kingdom is not some uh, by-and-by, pie-in-the-sky dream. It's, it's quite real. It's a real thing. It's a real place. It's a real entity. More real, in fact, than anything you've ever known. When his kingdom comes, you will find that that reality we experience now, the, the reality we live in now, is re really just the facsimile. And the fullness of the kingdom coming to earth will be the real reality in all of its fullness. You, do, you haven't known the real reality yet, experientially. And so the kingdom is both now and not yet. We talk about that all the time. And we're waiting. Because God's word tells us that we live in an anxious time of suffering as we see Christ's coming in the distance. It's coming. But for people who are impatient like me, it's not coming fast enough, Right? But God knows what he's doing, and he didn't really consult me, so there you go. Um, all creation, he tells us, is poised, waiting for fulfillment, waiting with eager expectation, longing for something. 
Uh, there is that same universality in the story that Jesus tells about the field that's almost ready for harvest, right? But it's far from perfect. What should be a beautiful, bountiful crop of wheat in the story turns out to be half full of weeds. But until the harvest, when there would be a drastic sorting out, the weeds and the wheat are left to grow side by side, right? If the wheat, which is a symbol of nourishment, if that flourishes, then so does the, the useless choking weeds or tares in that parable that Jesus told. And, and we are now at this moment waiting for the time of decision, the irrevocable sorting out that will come at the end of time. <clears throat> so we're not waiting on edge for some terrifying destruction like the Israelis currently are. In Paul's words, we're waiting to obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. I'm excited about that. I, I don't know about you, but we're awaiting the coming of God's kingdom. And in different ways, Jesus and Paul both are heralding in the scriptures here, the inbreaking, uh, the, the insertion of God's reign and rule on the earth, the fulfillment of all our hopes and prayers. And so we, so we do pray, just like the church always has. We say, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in right. And so the rest assured that God's kingdom will come to earth in all of its fullness and God will be done, uh, his will will be done on earth in Washington, D.C., where currently it's not. In Afghanistan, the Gaza Strip, God's will will be done in the Gaza Strip. God's will will be done in Russia. God's will will be done in affluent suburbs and in destitute inner cities. His will will be done. So we wait, and we pray, and we share the gospel. But we also acknowledge that waiting for the inbreaking of the kingdom in all of its fullness is, is really not like any other kind of waiting. It's not the routine, humdrum marking of time in our daily lives, minute by minute, hour by hour. For, for us who are in Christ Jesus, neither is it the terror or the dread of devastation. It's a waiting in hope. It's hope for something that we haven't yet seen. Yet we're yearning for this thing that we've never seen. How, do, how does that work? We're yearning for something we've never seen. And, and, we're, and it's a yearning that's beyond our words. We can't even give words to it. This yearning is for the coming of the kingdom. It, it's, it's really our yearning for God himself and his, and his actual near presence to us. Now, some of you might be familiar with the movie Fireproof, starring Kirk Cameron. Uh, one of the songs in that movie was written and performed by a friend of mine named John Waller, and it's titled, While I'm Waiting. And I think the lyrics are really appropriate to this topic about waiting on this. Uh, John writes, um, John Waller, not John the Apostle, just, just to be clear. Uh, he says, I'm waiting. I'm waiting on you, Lord, and I'm hopeful I'm, I'm waiting on you, Lord, though it's painful, but patiently I will wait and I'll move ahead, bold and confident, taking every step in obedience. While I'm waiting, I will serve you. While I'm waiting, I will worship. While I'm waiting, I will not faint. I'll be running the race even while I wait. And I love that idea. We're still running the race 
even though we're waiting on something that we can't, we can't make it move any faster than it's moving right now. So again, this, the kingdom that's coming is both now and it's not yet. Jesus came and inaugurated that kingdom. And when you put your faith in Christ alone, you became a citizen of that kingdom. Your allegiance is to the kingdom above all other nations, states, kingdoms. This one takes the pie. It's, it's the number one. But, but it's also not yet. For the fullness of it has not yet been realized for those of us who are waiting on our king's soon return. Here's what Peter says in, in 2 Peter 3, 1 to 13. Listen, listen to how Peter frames this. He says, this is the second letter that I've written to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm, I'm trying to stir up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through the apostles. Knowing this, first of all, here's what you need to know, Peter says, okay? Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers are going to come in the last days and they're going to be scoffing because that's what scoffers do. Scoffers scoff, okay? And, and he says, and they're going to say, you ready for this? Where's the promise of his coming? You guys have been waiting around for Jesus for a long time. He's not coming. So, so here's, here's what we're, we're told. That, that where is the promise coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, things just continue like they have from the beginning of creation. And, and, and so Peter addresses this in the next verse. In verse 5, he says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was actually deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. It's not going to be a water thing. It's going to be a fire thing. This is stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, don't overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And biblically, the history of the earth, did you know that we're coming up on the end of the sixth day, 6,000th year, biblically? And we're about to enter into the seventh day. Hmm. Could be significant. I don't know. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But he says, listen to me, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That means you're not going to have much warning, right? He's going to come like a thief, and then the heavens are going to pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies are going to be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and all the works that are done on it are going to be exposed. Every time you see a politician or a criminal or, or some, some heinous act, and you just feel like there's no justice, there's justice. It's just delayed a little bit longer. It's delayed. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so verse 11, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for, and then catch this, and hastening the day of the Lord? How do we hasten, make, make it come more quickly, the day of the Lord? You know what the answer is? 
Share the gospel. The gospel has to go to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the more we share the gospel, the more we hasten the day of the coming of the Lord. Because according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen? So how do we hasten? Again, we go tell. We share the gospel. We've got to be vocal about that. So with that in mind, that's the setup here for Luke 19. And we'll start with just one, one through 10, the first section here. Uh, and this is Zacchaeus. So you guys, how many of you are Sunday school graduates? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a... See, gosh, he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Yeah, I don't remember all the rest, but it's like, Zacchaeus, come down, right? I'm going to your house. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, Marguerite's got the whole thing. Go see Marguerite after church. She will sing the song to you in its entirety. Thank you, Marguerite. Yeah, so Luke 19, 1. Jesus, he, he entered Jericho and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and, I love this understatement, and was rich. Yeah, he was. He worked for the IRS. And he was a, he was a shady dude. And, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was short. He was a wee little man. He was small in stature, the Bible says. So he ran on ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked right at Zacchaeus. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I'm staying at your house today. So he hurried and came down and he received him joyfully. That's incredible to me. And, and when they saw it, when the, 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 they as the disciples, okay, his entourage, Jesus' entourage, the disciples, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone. He's, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. It's like, have you guys not been with Jesus? Dude, what's up? And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it four times over. Whoa. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So let's get the setting here. The location is Jericho, right? One of the places Jesus made a point to visit on his trips to Jerusalem. It's about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem near the Jordan River. It's known as one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world. Actually, Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. But it's also the first city that the Israelites conquered when they came out of, you know, came into the promised land, the land of Canaan, after their escape from Egypt. And so today, Jericho is located within what's called the Palestinian territory. And you need to know this, Palestina, that word is the Romanized version of the word Philistine. They are the Philistines of old. Maybe that gives some context to what's happening. Okay? 
So this, this Philistines, Palestina, the city's population, we don't actually know uh, because of the current war brewing in the Middle East. Uh, but you need to keep your eyes on Israel. They are God's timepiece, and the hour is very late, my friends. Uh, another interesting feature which came out much later after the establishment of Jericho was the Roman roads. And I was reading on this this week, and I was really fascinated. You, you know, you could travel on all those roads in the Roman Empire, and there were, they had distance markers to tell you how far the next city was. And, and there were small units of Roman soldiers stationed along the Roman road at different intervals to, to keep crime down in Jesus's day. But the thing that I read about that, that really wowed me was the roads themselves. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but through earthquakes, severe weather, and even after being submerged underwater for, for years, ancient Roman concrete structures have survived without all the cracks that we get in our concrete. And the secret to Roman concrete is the unique ability for it to heal its own cracks when it's exposed to water. And this was discovered by a group of Italian and American scientists. Uh, so the concrete reacts to water after it's been set, and it, and it heals the cracks in itself. And, and so if we could just get the Washington DOT to get a hold of some Roman concrete, I think we wouldn't have so much traffic problems. But there's, there are other problems besides the... the <laughs> In, in Jesus' day, Jericho was, was known as an oasis city. In fact, Herod the Great built his winter palace there because of its warm climate. And the Bible describes Jericho as the city of palms or palm trees. And since Jericho catered to the rich and powerful during the time of Jesus, homeless outcasts would often line the roads in and out of town because it was a great place to encounter the wealthy and, to, and, and the elite and, and possibly get a handout or, or find uh, some way to, to have work for a day or work for a week and, and to be able to make a little revenue. But let's talk about Zacchaeus, the, the wee little man that he was. Um, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He worked for the IRS. Already, we don't like him. I just don't like him. He's, he was generally hated and ostracized in his own community, which is why he just hung out with other tax collectors. He was a Jew that worked for and profited from the occupying Roman Empire. He's a traitor in the eyes of the Jews. Tax collectors had a good bit of latitude when it came to collecting. So long as Rome got its share of revenue... You could gouge people, and they would look the other way. There's more to keep for yourself. So here we have the wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree, who wanted to see the Lord Jesus as he was passing by. And Jesus, right, the Holy One of Israel, he specifically speaks to and singles out this traitor to Judaism to go to his house for lunch. Jesus just tells him straight up, Get out of the tree. I'm going to your house for lunch. Come on, Zach. Party's at your house, bro. Let's go. And, and you have to understand, like, Zacchaeus likely didn't have any friends, or at least any that weren't other tax collectors. His profession had made him very wealthy, through, though, though most, most tax collectors were more wealthy through unjust means, right? Uh, so it's conceivable that the party that day consisted mostly of tax officials, and, and you've got to remember that, um, yeah, his only friends were, and acquaintances were shady people who were ostracized from normal, you know, normal, normal society. They, they were making money off their own people, and they were seen as traitors 
to the nation of Israel. But the despised calling of a tax collector was not going to stop Jesus from giving this guy at least the opportunity to repent. Now, we don't know what exactly Jesus said beyond what's in the biblical text here, but it's abundantly clear that this visit by Jesus in, in, to, to Zacchaeus' home was incredibly formative for Zacchaeus. He, he publicly repents. Publicly, in front of the other tax collectors who were there. That means there's pressure being leveled on them to some degree that they might need to repent as well. And then Zacchaeus goes even further and he offers restitution. He says, I'm, I'll, I'll pay back four times over what I've taken. That's incredible. That's incredible. If you've ever stolen something, if you've ever taken something, even in your own house when you're a child and your mother has already said, don't touch that, don't eat that, and you did it anyway, you know what it's like to come under that condemnation. This is so much bigger. Four times. I will pay back four times. And the the joy of Zacchaeus at hosting Jesus in his own home for the presence of the Lord in his home. We should should have that same zeal. That ought to have the same effect on us when, when Jesus is in our home by the word of God. And Jesus is in our home by what we watch on television and listen to. That's, that's incredible. Like Jesus just dwells with his people. And in this scene, Zacchaeus models for us what actual repentance looks like. It's not trying to make up for what was done in the past. You, you can't make it up. It's only the blood of Jesus that covers your sins, right? So, so then it's the overflow of joy, rooted in salvation that motivates restitution. Did you you catch that? It's the overflow of joy that's rooted in salvation that motivates restitution. Restitution by itself satisfies the law. It's the bare minimum. That's what should be done. You need to pay it back. You stole that. You took it. And if you stole it, you're obligated to replace what was taken. But when you replace it and then you go beyond that four times over, then you've understood right? That this is not simply about money or possessions. This is about what it does to the persons who are mistreated by being robbed, by having their stuff taken away. This is true repentance, which is why Jesus chimes in to tell everybody and us that salvation came to his house that day. A changed attitude is an expression of a changed heart. And Zacchaeus's heart was changed. And now Jesus takes the opportunity to tell of this dinner party, um, to make a point about the coming kingdom. So they're sitting around, they're having a late lunch, and, and, and Luke continues, Luke 19, 11 to 28. So as they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, so, so so now the man is gone, right? And now in verse 15, when he returned, having received that kingdom, 
he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first one came to him and said, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful with very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Wow. And the second one came and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, well, you are to be over five cities. And then another came and said, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, okay, I condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not just put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I would have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take this mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, but he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Whew, that's tough. There are definitely some wrong expectations on the part of the apostles. And Jesus is speaking to those expectations. Though it's clear that they don't and won't understand until the resurrection. They expected that Jesus was going to inaugurate the kingdom now and claim his throne now. So Jesus is resetting the expectations regarding the timing of that event, but also he's affirming that it will happen. The disciples, the apostles, they, they just don't get it. See, the story that Jesus tells is a parallel to what's about to happen to him. He's the nobleman who's going away to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. And he hasn't returned yet, but he's returning soon. The standing order was, engage in my business until I come back. You stay, you, the apostles aren't sitting on the front row. You engage in my business, he says, until I come back. That's for every generation of Christians. And then the story, the populace largely didn't want this person to reign over them. But you know what? That's not their call. Israel was not a democracy or even a democratic republic like ours used to be. It was a theocracy. God is the king. He's the ruler over all. It's a monarchy. Jesus is the king. And in the parable, he goes, he, he, he's back from his journey, having ascended into heaven, coming back at the end of the tribulation, a.k.a. the time of Jacob's trouble. This is, this is eschatology now. He's the king. So he's in charge. And now he wants to know what, how each servant did with their stewardship of what was given into their care while the master was away receiving his kingdom. You do see that we're precisely in this parable right now. We're right in the middle of it. This is us. We're the servants with the minas. What are you doing with your mina? It might help us to think through what a biblical talent was worth back then. Our English Bible translations make things difficult because they don't generally agree. But like the NIV, New International Version, um, translates 10,000 talents as 10,000 bags of gold. I don't know about that. Um, the Living Bible... <laughs> 
the Living Bible. Um, takes, a more, takes a little more leeway, translates it as $10 million, literally 10,000 talents, which would be approximately 3,000 British pounds or roughly $3.4 million U.S., um, whatever it was, like, I, I'm not going to give you the exact figure of how much money it is, but it's a great deal of money that was entrusted to these servants. In the Old Testament, the word talent appears when describing how much gold the Israelites used to build the tabernacle. And it was a unit of measurement for weighing precious metals. But in the New Testament, the word means something different. It's, uh, it's a large amount of money. It's a monetary measurement equal to about 6,000 drachmas or denarii, which are the Greek and Roman coins equivalency, okay? It's the largest unit of currency at that time. Whatever bill, whatever denomination you could pull out of your wallet that was the highest denomination, that's it, okay? And, and it was equivalent to a day's wages. So, so we go back to the story, and, and the first steward increased his stewardship tenfold, right? Good on you. The first one came to him, said, Lord, your mind has made 10 mina more. And he said, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful with a little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And, and then the same thing happened to the steward who was entrusted with five minas. The second one came and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas more. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. And then the steward who was given the one mina and, and, and he hid it, he claimed fear as his reason. He came and said, Lord, here, here's, here's what's yours. Here's the mina you gave me, which I kept bound up in a handkerchief because I was afraid of you because you're a severe person and, and, and you take what's not yours and you deposit and you reap what you, what you haven't sown. And Jesus says, if you really believe that, you would have at least put it in the bank and made some interest on it. it but you don't actually believe that. The steward didn't do that. And so the master takes everything that the steward had been given and he gave it to the one with 10. And now, and now the guy that had 10 minus has 21 minus. He got 10 more and then he got the, the one servant's one minus and now he's got 21 minus. That's so unfair in our modern American morality. Yeah, well, uh, no, it's not fair. No, it's not. It's just. It's just. He takes it and give it to, give it to the one with mo the most. So hear what the master says. This is the lesson. This is the takeaway for us. To everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has is going to be taken away. This is about stewardship, by the way. Not just your money. What did we talk about this morning? Abby's up here. Time, talent, treasure, touch. What are you doing with your stewardship? It sounds... So harsh to hear these words. Even what he has will be taken away. That's, that's so anti-American sensibility. I deserve. The answer is simple. How could Jesus do that? It, because it all belongs to him. It's all his. None of it's ours. None of it's yours. None of it's mine. It's on loan. That's why we talk about Stewardship. Instead of ownership, we don't own anything. When you die, regardless of your destination, you're not taking any of it with you. And so it's not actually yours. It's not yours. 
It all belongs to the Lord. We own nothing, not really, not in the light of eternity. And what you have, what you own, in air quotes, is on loan from God, to quote the late Rush Limbaugh. Um, this, this is about stewardship. And that doesn't mean money only. It doesn't mean wealth only. You and I are stewards of all that God's entrusted to us, from lands and houses to friends and family. We are merely stewards, and we will give an answer for our stewardship. That should frighten some of you. It frightens me a little bit. Well, you're, well, you're a pastor. Why does that... Dude. Get real. Our stewardship... God, God is going to talk to us about our stewardship. Not just, did, did you give 10% to the church? <laughs> okay, that's like training wheels for generosity. Hmm. And then the tagline here, the, the tag in this parable. Those who had sent the delegation not wanting this man to rule over them. You remember those guys? Those people were slaughtered, put to death in his sight. They did not love the Lord and they did not love his appearing. This would have been incredibly jarring for the Jewish audience listening to Jesus who largely assumed that because they were simply descendants of Abraham, they were going to be good to go when they stood before God. But it has never been a matter of pedigree or ancestry or aptitude or popularity. It's about the faith in the one and only Savior and love for his appearing. What are you going to do while you wait upon the coming of the Lord Jesus for his bride? What are you going to do? How are you going to steward Okay, we can't withdraw by our, or by our fears and apathy, keep, keep repentance far away, pretend like Jesus isn't coming back to, to, to judge our stewardship. We have to engage. We can't withdraw. And I, and I love that Jesus has made it so, um, this regular habit of reaching out to mix in with people who are not religious in the text. I think we could learn from that. I think we need to embrace that. Precisely, this is precisely why the great exchange is, is this crew has traveled from Georgia to do a training session with us today because we need to do that. We need to get out of our comfort zone. We need, we're going to go to the campuses again Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and maybe you can't come, but you should come to the training. I just want to push this again at 1130 this morning. W would that more Christians take the opportunity to, to be equipped to simply talk to people about Jesus, talk about salvation, figure out ways to open that conversation up? It's, it's as easy as making friends with the baristas wherever you go for your caffeine addiction, okay? It's that simple. Think like Mr. Rogers. Who are the people in your neighborhood? Okay? How can I be a blessing to them? How can I strategically get the gospel into my conversations? Um. <laughs> I'm getting, I'm getting um, notes on my iPad from the tech crew in the back. He's like, hey, there's a movie showing in 15 minutes. So we're going we're gonna to just cut to the chase here at the end. We live in a kingdom that's already begun, but is yet not completed. We anticipate a kingdom that's already activated, but not yet consummated. We, we gather around the cross that inaugurated that kingdom and which draws our attention to the living presence of our king. And one glad day, very soon, we're going to hear the sound of trumpets and heavenly choirs and the shouts of triumph. And we're going to eat and drink in the kingdom with our king. And in anticipation of that reality, 
We need to continue proclaiming the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. Let's fulfill the Lord's commission so that the world might know him and that we might be seated with him at that grand banquet feast and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we just give this to you. We thank you for your goodness and grace over us. We want to be good stewards of all that you've entrusted to us, but especially good stewards of the gospel. Lord, open our mouths where we are fearful. And uh, Lord, use us to make the gospel known to the lost and to the perishing. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen. Make disciples who make disciples. Preach the gospel to all who will listen. And may us throw church. You are sent right after you help us.